This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. We're back out and about. Santa Rosa is our host restaurant right here on Capitol Hill. Don't worry, everyone. I'm done with the whole COVID experience. No more isolation. We did that for two weeks. All is well. Thank you for your text, direct messages, and emails. So we're going to talk about the economy. And I know that you are not happy, America, with the state of the U.S. economy. We're going to talk to two people who work in the House of Representatives on that very topic. Jim Himes is the chairman of the House Select Committee on the Economy. It has a larger name, Mr. Chairman. You're welcome to say it. Brian Stile, also Republican from Wisconsin, is the ranking Republican on that committee. So, Mr. Chairman, give the full name of the committee... And when the Wall Street Journal released a poll earlier this week, it said that 83% of America is unhappy with the current state of the economy, rating it either poor or not so good. That was the highest rate of dissatisfaction since the poll started in 1972. What do you tell Americans who are that upset about the state of the U.S. economy? Well, uh, Major, thanks for having me. Let's start with the easy one. The full name of the committee is the Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness in Growth. And there is no acronym that makes that fun no, to say. No, it isn't. But, this um, is a city that loves acronyms, can't come up with one. And this was created by the Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. This was correct. created by the Speaker at the start of this Congress. That's okay. right. And, um, you know, what, what the, the point of the committee is to address the fact that, that, is, that is sort of objectively out there. It's not sort of subject to partisan arguing, which is that we're in a point in time in this country's history, and I'll come around to your more near term question, where the disparities between the very, very wealthy in this country and kind of everybody else, right? It's not just the rich and the poor. It's increasingly hard for people to be middle class, and more and more people are feeling left behind. And that, of course, has implications not just for them, but for our politics. Um, But really, it's the job of the committee, and it's the job of uh, Brian and myself to try to look at this as dispassionately as we can and to suggest solutions. And obviously, we're going to suggest different solutions, but we're we're really leaning into trying to suggest solutions that might have bipartisan support and their therefore might someday become law. You know, with respect to your specific question about the way people are feeling about the economy today, that's not really what the committee is focused on, but but I get it. I, I mean, inflation is something that every single American 
feels every single day. It's, you know, unemployment. Like when you get a 6% unemployment rate, some people feel that intensely because they lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. But when inflation is uh, hitting everybody at the grocery store and at the gas pump, that's something that everybody feels. And all I can do is say, and I think all we can do is say that, you know, over time we got to hope that that, uh, that that begins to decline. But to the role of the committee, as you just described it, if you're talking about and looking at disparities in the U.S. economy, those at the lower end of the economy are devoured more by inflation than those at the higher end of the economy. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so inflation is is uh, particularly painful for the folks who are living hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck. It's also very painful for people, our senior citizens that are living on fixed incomes. And we need to appreciate that, uh, you know, in a city that is very affluent, uh, we need to appreciate the fact that this is something that is that that, that hurts uh, some of our most vulnerable Americans. Congressman Style, your your thoughts on why Americans, according to this polling data, so displeased? Uh, the, the polling data only confirms what I hear every day when at home in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. People feel that it's harder and harder to get by, and that's because it is. Wages are not keeping up with inflation, and inflation impacts everybody, but it's clobbering lower-income workers right now. Every day, those lower-income workers are going to fill up their car with gas. It's now over $5 a gallon in many places. Ten states and the District of Columbia now have an average gasoline price over $5. I, I think we need to change course on our energy policy and unleash American energy to lower those costs. People feel the pain when they go to the grocery store and they see their weekly grocery bills going up. People are frustrated and want to change course. I think we've seen some of the policies being put forth uh, by the Biden administration that's made it harder uh, for many lower-income families. And it's an opportunity to get our spending under control in Washington, get inflation down. And in particular, I think one of the most, one of the most challenging areas for, for so many folks is the energy policies being put forward by this administration. The opportunity to change that and to bring the cost down would have a significant impact for everyone, but in particular, lower-income workers. So on this day that we're recording this, ladies and gentlemen, it's June 7th. The World Bank made this announcement just a couple of hours ago, again on June 7th. The global economy may be headed for years of weak growth and rising prices. The head of the World Bank, David Malpass, said the global economy could face stagflation not seen since the 70s. Mr. Chairman, Jim Himes, do you share those concerns and how much worse would that make things than they are now? Well, I, uh, when it comes to economic projections, I'm sort of a fan of that uh, well-known economist Yogi Berra, who uh, famously said that uh, predictions are really hard, especially about the future. Uh, and look, there's there's a wide array of economists out there. What we know is that um, inflation in this country, inflation is a global phenomenon right now. It and is I, indeed. And I understand that you know, in a partisan environment, people need to blame it on the president. This happens, uh, but you know, the reality is that inflation is a global phenomenon that is caused largely by the fact that a pandemic completely trashed global supply chains. And yes, it is somewhat caused in this country because we've got uh, meaningful inflation. It's somewhat caused in this country by the fact that consumers have uh, a lot of, or at least had a lot of money in the bank, right? And again, you can frame that in partisan terms. You can look at the $6 trillion that was spent to address COVID and say that's all Joe Biden's fault. The reality, of course, is that two thirds of that spending happened under the Trump administration. But you know what? what is going to solve this problem, of course, is the Federal Reserve, which is what they do. Uh, And uh, when they do it, it's not going to be pleasant, right? Because the way they solve this problem is by raising interest rates, which has Mm -hmm. implications for mortgages and student loans and consumer spending as well. Do you think, Brian Seil, that the Fed blew this inflation scenario? 
there is a lot of rearview mirror analysis now that suggests the Fed, which created a whole policy statement that it never had before, which was about emphasizing jobs and wage growth and de-emphasizing inflation, that policy missed the mark and is now the Fed way behind the inflationary curve. Starting two years ago, Chairman Powell of the Federal Reserve came before the House Financial Services Committee, uh, and I asked him that exact question and shared my concern of the long-term risk of inflation. I think we've had a mismatch of both fiscal and monetary policy uh, for some time, where we've had easy money uh, from the Federal Reserve. They dramatically increased their balance sheet to the tune of $9 trillion. Now we're beginning a process of clawing. And the practical effect of that is what? The, the practical effect of that was that we overheated the United States economy and we entered an inflationary uh, environment. And that's coupled with the fiscal policy uh, that we're having here in Washington, where we're spending well beyond uh, our means. And so as we look at a $30 trillion debt, a move of 1% in interest rates, which, all, which many people are now predicting, self-included, has a $300 billion impact. It takes a period of time to ramp that in. 200 billion of that is direct cash flow, 100 billion of that is, is pressure on entitlement programs. But I think we're in a very precarious situation if we don't dramatically change course. Do you share the fears of the World Bank that the global economy could be headed for a period of extended stagflation, meaning high prices and low growth? I, I share the fear, but I do think that we have an opportunity to change course on a number of policies that will begin to alleviate that risk. I think we could look at the energy policies that we see here in the United States with an opportunity to reduce energy costs here, which are a big driver of American inflation. I think we can get our spending under control, and in particular as we look uh, at what has been over the past two years. So I I share the concern. I think there's an opportunity to change Let me jump in on energy real quick, because the war in Ukraine is reducing energy supplies from Russia. Europe is not using as much Russian oil and natural gas. That is taking more supply off the global markets. There are supply problems that are not just related to U.S. energy policies. Mm -hmm. And even changes in U.S. energy policies are not going to solve the global disbalance between supply and demand. You'll agree with that? Not completely, absolutely. Okay, so we can't remedy it all through regulatory policy here. These supply and demand issues are in the energy sector and they're driving prices higher globally. Uh, There's many factors at play. I think one factor is the ability to unleash American energy. There's unquestionably other global factors that are into this. The question is, what are the policy tools we have at our hands right now in the United States of America to begin to alleviate the pressure? Congressman Himes, we need to go to a break, but when we come back, I want to get your thoughts on U.S. energy policy and what the Biden administration has or hasn't done to make this situation either better or worse. I'm Major Garrett. We're at Santa Rosa, back out, happy to do so. Lunch is en route. Jim Himes, Brian Stiler, my guests, back in one second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. 
That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Santa Rosa is our host restaurant right here on Capitol Hill. Lunch has arrived. You know, one of the things that's uh, interesting, sometimes more interesting than other times, is on the show you get to see semi-famous or sometimes really famous people eat on camera. We'll put you gentlemen in the semi-famous category, if you don't mind. Uh, Jim Himes, he is the chairman of the Select House Select Committee on the Economy. Brian Style is the re- ranking Republican. Jim is from Connecticut. Brian is from Wisconsin. So, Mr. Chairman, uh, Brian went uh, on somewhat loquaciously about the state of the U.S. energy policy. What's your response? As a supporter of the Biden administration and uh, an advocate for, I would imagine, the policies currently in existence. Well, look, I've been doing this for a little while, right? So Mm -hmm. the closer we get to November, the further apart reality diverges from the partisan discussion, right? And the reality is that there's really almost nothing that the Biden administration could do today that would have an impact on near-term energy prices. That's just a fact. As Yogi Berra said, you could look it up. Uh, Now, my Republican friends agree we shouldn't take oil and gas from Russia. Okay, that's a major crimp in supply. They agree we probably shouldn't take oil and gas from Iran. I think my Republican friend would agree with that, right? Major source of supply. Now we could go hat in hand to the Saudis and beg them, beg them, beg them uh, to, to increase supply. We should think about whether we want to do that, given what the Saudi regime is all about. But look, the idea that there's anything that the president can do right now to dramatically affect the uh, the energy price is just nuts, right? So we hear about XL pi- the XL pipeline, right? Guess what? If we if, if we said go on that today, it would be two or three years out before that supply came online. The president has, of course, tapped the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he's been uh, jawboning the producers and whatnot. So mm-hmm. the, look, the reality is, and I get it, we're getting closer to November, so we need to make this about partisan, but there is nothing that any of us can do right now that would dramatically change the near-term price of energy. And by the way, if we just decided to do what some of my Republicans want to do, which is burn all the coal, burn all the gas, burn all the petroleum, good luck for the next generation that will be dealing with the problems of climate change. Your response, Congressman? I think we saw on day one of the Biden administration a market-shifting move by killing the, the Keystone Pipeline. Why and do you so think that matters? I, I think it matters because you have oil and gas producers across the United States making decisions if they're going to make multi-billion dollar investments in domestic production. And the market-indicating move on the first day was don't invest. But they were already making many of those decisions. Uh, I have family members in the oil and gas industry, and major oil and gas producers during the pandemic stopped investing. If you look at their mark, if you look at their balance sheets, they are paying out dividends at much higher rates. They are much more responsive to stockholders than they are to on the, on the production side. So they're making market decisions that predated that, that decision from the Biden administration on Keystone XL. Right. Demand went down during the pandemic. And so many of these domestic producers were making decisions. Starting day one of the Biden administration, they heard a market indicator of not to invest. And I think we saw a pullback uh, in domestic investment, and we saw a reduction uh, in the ability to ramp up supply to meet the levels of demand that we need. There's many global factors also at play, uh, but that's the one thing that I think we could have done uh, to really pr- tame down the prices that Americans are getting clobbered with. Do you agree with the chairman's point that even if Keystone XL had been allowed to go ahead, it would not have materially affected supply currently? I think it's one piece of the puzzle. I'm not offering that that unilaterally would solve it. I'm saying that it's a major market indicator to many of these investors who are looking to produce domestically, and they've pulled back because they're concerned about obtaining full permits to get from 
exploration into full production. Now, Mr. Chairman, those who are listening carefully to your words, and I'm sure many of my audience find themselves in that category, say, wow, really? There's nothing we can do right now about energy prices. Well, no, there are things that we could do, and I think I outlined some of them, right? We could allow Russians to export. This is basic supply and demand, right? And, you know, as Brian said, if we had more sources of carbon and oil and, uh, and natural gas, uh, it would probably in the near term, uh, because it would increase supply, it would probably have a somewhat of a near term effect. But look, the reality is that Keystone XL, which we talk about and talk about and talk about, would have no appreciable effect. And, and Brian's economics are not quite right, because if, if the government forbids Keystone XL, that's a reduction in supply. So guess what? I was in the private sector for a long time. The private sector looks at that and say, look, there's less supply. We should invest more. Um, but, uh, you know, the reality today is, and this is not disputable, is that the energy companies who make their investment decisions not based on what the guy in the Oval Office is doing, but based on their forecast of economic markets. They are sitting on unused leases. They are doing the same investment plans that they planned to do five years ago. Um, they are making decisions uh, based on the market, not based on the White House. And they're also paying out more dividends, as I mentioned and earlier. And they're paying out more dividends. So, so is there nothing we can do? Look, I think the president has done a lot of what he can do. He tapped in a major way the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We could get smarter, right? We could make ourselves less reliant on foreign sources of of energy, and that would involve making a, a more serious commitment to sustainables, and by the way, making a more serious commitment to nuclear power, which nobody gets to shut off. Mm-hmm. Did the Biden administration, with the American Rescue Plan, which, as you accurately pointed out, was additive to trillions of dollars approved during the Trump administration, nevertheless, incautiously put too much money into the U.S. economy, is even Larry Summers, and now, according to a new book, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, was concerned about at the time. Yeah, I was. I was actually always on Team Summers. I was, ner- and I'm not claiming any, uh, you know, great economic expertise. But in retrospect, and I am speaking in retrospect, I actually think the Fed was slow out of the out of the blocks. Uh, and there might be a whole bunch of reasons for that, but I think that we were slow out of the uh, the Fed was slow out of the uh, out of the blocks. And yeah, I think you could probably look back on the what is close to six trillion in spending and say we'd have lower inflation if it had been, you know, I don't know, trillion. dollars or less. But again, if we want to make this partisan, we ought to at least remember that the majority of that spending was done by the Trump administration. So it's not fair to just say, oh, well, Joe Biden's uh, spending is what did it here. But timing does matter, Mr. Chairman. And the economy was beginning to grow and come out of the pandemic about the time the American Rescue Plan was put forward and enacted. And the difference between $2 trillion and $1 trillion might have had a salutary effect on the inflation we're experiencing now. True? It might have. It might have. And um, look, there are a lot of people in this town pretty disappointed about the failure of the Build Back Better plan, which was even bigger than the American Rescue Uh, Plan. Yes. And, um, you know, you can look at a plan like that as you can look at the American Rescue Plan and say, yeah, maybe it was too much. You could also say, you know what that, you know what else the American Rescue Plan did? And this is coming from a guy who represents Bridgeport, Connecticut, where an awful lot of kids are living in poverty. The American Rescue Plan cut childhood poverty by 50 percent. So all I'm saying here is remember that there's two sides to this question. Congressman Stile. I, I think the American Rescue Plan overheated the economy and, and is a large part the cause of the inflationary pressures we feel. Would you have been for one trillion? No, I, I think by the point we got to, by the point the start of 2021, it was time to rip off the Band-Aid of COVID-era policies and get our way of life back. Earlier on, were the first bills perfect? Absolutely not. Were they necessary? Yes, because governments were closing private businesses and we were concerned people were going to be unable to afford their homes, pay rent, and cover a grocery bill. What we saw was continuous government involvement 
in significant spending at a period of time when we had vaccines readily available to those that wanted them, and we had an opportunity to get our way of life back to peel off the Band-Aid, and instead we saw excessive spending. I think it's driving the inflation that we're dealing with right now. So this committee does a couple of things. It does work here in Washington, and Mr. Chairman, if I understand it correctly, it also does work in the field. You've gone around to different parts of the country. Do you have something else currently planned in the future? Another set of field hearings. We do. We'll, uh, I think in about a week and a half, we'll be down in Texas um, looking at, a, at something we haven't looked at yet, which is the challenges in rural areas. Um, you know, we, we've done a couple of trips and we, we really, I think I, I speak for both Texas of us. Texas is a big place. Can you be more specific? Yeah, no, we'll be down along the border uh, in an agricultural region. Rio Grande Valley um, area? Uh, it, it's down in uh, Vicente Gonzalez's district, which mm-hmm. is, uh, I believe, just outside of Brownsville. Um, it's agricultural. Uh, what's interesting about it is, A, it's agricultural, B, it's southern, and C, um, and I haven't explored this, but it is relatively unconnected by rail lines and highways. And one of the things that drives an absence of economic opportunity, of course, is being disconnected from the broader economy. So um, I think it's going to be a really interesting trip. And we've taken a bunch. We went to uh, we went to Brian's district in Wisconsin. We went to Lorraine, Ohio, which is your sort of classic post-industrial mm-hmm. uh, place. And we went out to San Francisco, which is not your classic post-industrial place, to to get the feel for what is actually happening outside of the District of Columbia. And when you go to this area near Brownsville, Texas, I would imagine Congressman-style immigration will also be part of what you are looking at or assessing. Yeah, the, the beauty of being able to go to all these local communities is we can see what's directly impacting them and their unique geographic footprint. As we're in South Texas, I think we're going to hear stories from folks uh, who are directly impacted by the fact that we have a southern border that's not secured. I'm Major Garrett. We are at Santa Rosa. Lunch is here. All of us are eating, and I very much compliment the two congressmen for doing that. Not everyone is as bold as you two gentlemen are, so my hat's off to you for that. Our conversation about the state of the U.S. economy and possible remedies continues. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just one moment. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Santa Rosa is our host restaurant. A delicious lunch. It is uh, June 7th when we're recording this. I'd like everyone to know that so we're not frozen in time. And you know the references I make to timing are related to June 7th. Our two guests are the two people in charge of the House Select Committee on the Economy. It has a longer name, but just deal with the economy. That's what it does. Jim Himes from Connecticut, 4th District, and Brian Stile, Wisconsin's 1st District. So, uh, Mr. Chairman... It has been a roiling conversation almost since the day that President Biden was inaugurated. What his immigration policies are, what they aren't, how they are influencing the situation at the border, and, as I'm sure you'll notice when you go down for this next field hearing, how they are affecting the economics of Texas, border towns, and the country writ large. What are your thoughts? Well, let's, let's start with the economic effects here, right, um, since that's the subject of the committee. Um, 
If you talk to economists left and right, they'll tell you one of the very best things we could do to, uh, to, to really urge this economy along would be to substantially increase legal and orderly immigration, right? Uh, and uh, it's, it's one of the great untold strengths that we have in this country, whether it's Andy Grove who founded Intel or I could go on and on and on about what, what immigrants do for our economy. We need to get back to that. So, uh, by the way, that would help with Social Security and all kinds of other things that Brian was concerned about that he should be concerned about because you, immigrants tend to be young. Um, so, by the way, immigration would also help with, with inflation. And again, check that with the economists. You know, when you've got lots of jobs that go unfilled, immigrants are often the ones that will fill those jobs. With respect to the border, which is a different conversation entirely, countries need secure borders. Um, and this is not a new problem, right? This is a problem that has beset every president uh, in an, for a very long time. And the challenge that we have is how to uh, abide by the notion that you need a secure border, secure from people crossing it illegally, secure from fentanyl and that sort of thing, without being inhumane. Um, and, uh, you know, I suppose I appreciated the fact that our former president was serious about controlling the border, but he did it in such an inhumane way that I think most Americans said, hey, wait a minute, that's not, that's not the way I want it done. So, look, this is a, at the end of the day, what is going to solve the illegal immigration problem in the long run is going to be to do away with the economic incentives for people to come here, right? That means cracking down on people who are hiring the undocumented illegally. Uh, it means, um, it means, and I know that this is dull and hard to talk about, but it's true. It means working with countries like El Salvador and Honduras to turn them into places that people want to stay in. In the long run, that's what's going to fix our border issue. Congressman Style. We have a broken legal immigration system. We have a broken illegal immigration system. Uh, we need to address it. Uh, and first and foremost, I think we need to secure the border uh, the United States. Uh, we've seen this administration move, I think, in the opposite direction in a number of manners, including uh, attempting to remove Title 42, uh, now being held up in the courts. We'll see how that shakes out. I think it's an important policy to have in place. Uh, we had the Remain in Mexico policy. We saw this administration change gears on that. Uh, but the message is clear that's being broadcast to the world is that the borders of the United States are not secured, and it's exacerbating a problem of both human trafficking and drug trafficking. And this committee, uh, we had a hearing in particular as it related uh, to, dr to drug overdose deaths and drug abuse in the United States. Uh, we had a father from West Virginia come and testify about losing his son uh, to illicit and illegal fentanyl, which is pouring across the border uh, from Mexico into the United States. It's impacting uh, communities that are blue and red, rich and poor across the country. And I think it's something that we need to become serious about, about securing As the border. I understand it, most of that fentanyl comes through ports of entry. Many of them do, absolutely. And so, Which are highly regulated, highly supervised, and technologically advanced areas of interdiction. Yeah, so we need... We need so so all, my only point there is... To say the border is insecure, therefore we have more fentanyl, the secure parts of the border, fentanyl is still getting through. Fentanyl is absolutely still getting through. It's coming across through legal ports of entry, as you correctly identify. It's also coming uh, through with uh, illegal uh, trafficking across borders, areas that are not secured. I think we need an all-of-the-above approach. It's a huge challenge. It's multifaceted, uh, but we need to tackle it head-on. I want to ask you two gentlemen a larger kind of 30,000-foot question. I've watched uh, the immigration stalemate in this city for the better part of 25 years. And what I've seen transpire with inaction in Washington is states, red states in their way, blue states in their way, are developing policies to address the undocumented populations in their own states. For example, New York and California now provide Medicaid benefits to undocumented persons. California is about to make that universally accessible. New York almost has. 
in New York, there's a conversation at the city council in New York City about allowing undocumented immigrants to vote. These are policies that are anathema to red states. But if there had been federal immigration policy in 2007 or 2013, those things could have been addressed. And minimum standards of what you can and can't do could have been federally applied, unifying the country. What my larger question is, on this topic and many others, but I just want to deal with immigration for a second, when Washington doesn't act, and red states and blue states do, they become increasingly alien from one another, unrecognizable to one another. I don't think that's a healthy thing for our system, and I think it creates policies that look so divergent, they're almost unrecognizable to fellow Americans. I know that's a big topic, but I want you to both jump in on that. Well, real, real quickly, I might quibble a little bit with whether they're unrecognizable. Go to an agricultural, rural, deep red state and mm -hmm. talk to farmers, and they will tell you that they cannot do what they do without the undocumented. They will Agreed. tell you that. Now, that doesn't, that's not an argument for more undocumented. Let me be clear about that. Brian's right when he says that the system is broken. But I'm not sure it's quite as different as you say it is because, again, agriculture relies, like it or not, on the, on the undocumented. So one of the great tragedies of my experience here in Washington was that I think it was roughly 2013 when the Senate passed with some 66 votes, I think, a comprehensive immigration reform. And it had good border security stuff. It had a tough but earned path to citizenship for 11 million undocumented. And it had a system that would have made it very hard for people to employ undocumented uh, workers. And very sadly, then Speaker John Boehner decided not to bring it up in the House. I think if that had come up and passed into law, we would not be having this conversation right now. Um, and, and, in, and instead, would, would we solve it entirely? No, we wouldn't, but we'd be on other issues. It was one of the great lost opportunities of my time here in Washington. To your point, I'll quibble in, in response. Yes, red states rely on agricultural workers, some of whom are undocumented. Some are seasonal and documented. It works both ways. But red states don't apply uh, great policies to make Medicaid universal, as blue states have. That's the unrecognizable. That's the part where people say, wait a minute, how did that happen? Well, a state is essentially making its own immigration policy. And that's not the way our country works. That's the right. way our Constitution right. works. Congressman Stile? Yeah, as, as the federal government has failed to act, states have chosen different paths. I think that's one of the challenges and one of the needs uh, for us to address this at the federal level. I think the gating item uh, for us to address uh, the broken legal immigration system uh, is to secure the border and first address the illegal immigration crisis uh, that we're experiencing How do you right define now. securing the border? I think you can look at the number of individuals who are coming to the United States illegally uh, at a continuous month after month, all-time record highs. Right, uh, but so, so you, you, need, you need some numerical norm for how many years before you do anything on those who are here already and are seeking a path to citizenship. I, I think the political realities are pretty clear, is that while we have record high numbers of individuals illegally entering the United States uh, across the southern border, there's not going to be... Uh, the, the, the strength that's needed to address a legal, the, the broken legal immigration system. I think the gating issue is whether or not we can get our heads wrapped around uh, securing the southern border and controlling the illegal immigration crisis. You see, the, the reason that conversation can't get any more specific than Brian is getting right now is because there's a saying which I believe is true, which as long as you can make a dollar a day in Honduras, or two dollars a day if you're lucky in Honduras, and you can make 
$200 a day in Texas. As somebody once said, you can build a 50-foot wall, the full span of the United States border, and the very next morning you will see a 52-foot ladder against it. So could we have a more secure border? Yes. But that, of course, is not the long-term solution. Think of that 52-foot wall. The long-term solution is addressing demand. By the way, this is true of drugs, too. If you think that we're going to solve the drug problem by stemming supply, you have not been paying attention to the war on drugs for the last 30 years. So this is about, in the long run, managing demand. And and I'm I'm constantly perplexed why my Republican friends won't acknowledge that, because that's how we're going to fix this thing. 20 seconds, Brian. I think there is a demand side issue to be discussed. There has to be. Um, there, There needs to be. The United States is always going to be a beacon of hope pulling people in having people wanting to come to the United States. That's positive. We have to be able to control who comes in a legal and orderly manner. Uh, we have to hold uh, businesses accountable that are hiring uh, and employing illegal immigrants, as the chairman noted. That is the voice of Brian Stile and also Jim Himes. Our conversation on the current state and maybe the future state of the U.S. economy continues. I'm Major Garrett. Santa Rosa is our host restaurant segment for the takeout in just one moment. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. We have made very quick work of our lunch here at Santa Rosa Restaurant. Proud to say we are all very lunched up right now. Jim Himes is the chairman of the House Select Committee on the Economy. Brian Stile is the ranking Republican. I want to ask you gentlemen something that is not directly economically related, but I think if you think about the culture and general sense of where America thinks about itself, it is semi-related. And I'm talking about mass shootings, gun violence in this country. It is topical on Capitol Hill this week. There probably aren't directly linkable economic effects, but I have to believe that it is part of a deeper conversation about what America is and what America will tolerate about itself. Uh, Congressman Himes, chairman of the committee, what's your thoughts? Yeah, this doesn't... (laughs) doesn't feel economic to me, and maybe that's because my house is 25 miles or so from the Sandy Hook Elementary School. That's a very affluent yes. community. Uh, the perpetrator there was living in a grand home and, you know, was a really, really screwed up kid. Uh, so it does not feel at all economic no. to me. Um, and, you know, Brian was talking about all of the above. Uh, you know, we got to, yes, we need to be an awful lot smarter about identifying those screwed up, are almost always boys, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, but so we far, also, so and, you know, here's where it gets a little sadly, uh, sadly controversial. We don't have any more mental illness than Japan or the UK or Germany. We don't have any more bad video games. We don't have any more secularization. We don't have more violent movies. Well, Europe's way ahead of us in terms of secularization. Uh, secular, what we have is a nation that is absolutely awash in firearms. So that kid in Sandy Hook has no problem, or the kid in the person in Buffalo. And so, look, let me or be Uvalde. clear. Let yeah. me be clear about this. Right, both of us took an oath to uphold the Constitution, including the Second Amendment. But if we're unwilling to, you know, do some very basic and commonsensical things that are supported by the vast majority of Americans, like universal background check and like certain limits and age limits, uh, we will continue to pay the price in the lives of our people. 
Congressman Stein. It's an incredibly challenging situation that we have play out in the United States. I do think there's areas uh, where Democrats and Republicans can come together. Uh, I think we're going to have a, a hard look at, in particular, school resource officers. We saw uh, over the past few years many school districts, some in the state of Wisconsin, remove those. Those are a key factor at play. I think mental health and the resources that are needed. The United States uh, uniquely closed school districts more than almost any other country uh, around the world. I think we're dealing with some of the mental health challenges that that created. I think there's a need to continue uh, mental health resources uh, in schools. I think we broadly, as we look at shootings and crime uh, playing out across the United States and crime uh, increasing, uh, we need to get serious in particular on gun-related crimes and holding criminals accountable. We study a lot of things in this country. I was looking at some data this morning. We spend less money studying the effects of gun violence in this country than we do on almost any other public health issue. Anything related to diabetes, obesity, heart, lung, everything else gets much, Alzheimer's, all those things per 1,000, one death per 1,000 receives much more money. Should we spend more on studying gun violence itself to understand academically and from a data perspective, what are the issues, what is the prevalence, and what are some of the possible remedies? We don't do that at the federal level in the way that we would, I think, with any other crisis that we thought of as public health related. And when you have as many mass shootings and as many homicides and suicides by gun in this country, you, it seems to me not unreasonable and certainly not jeopardizing to the Second Amendment to spend some federal do dollars to study it. Your thoughts? I, I think the broad concern is whether or not we're going to see a, a biased report from a federal agency rather than an unbiased report. So there is research in this field as whether or not it's federally funded. And I think the concern is that there's going to be a biased report and a biased view. Do you think there are biased federal reports on obesity? I think there. I think we we could look back uh, during the COVID pandemic. And I think we saw. I think we saw uh, very clearly some biased reports coming out of some of our of our health agencies as it relates to the policy solutions uh, to address COVID, which is a real crisis. I do think we saw some biased reports come out of some of our health agencies on the policy solutions. I think we may, may very likely see the same if we were federally funding uh, the research. Mr. Chairman. I, 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 in, in deference to my good relationship with my ranking member here, I'm not going to address that directly. But to say, how about if we just spend as much looking at, this, at the, what is now the leading cause of death amongst Americans under 20 as we spend on the second, third, or fourth, or fifth leading cause of death? And look, we're an open country. I, 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 again, I don't want to address what Brian just said because I value our relationship. But uh, if there's a biased report, guess what? Universities all over this country, think tanks all over this country will identify this bias. So uh, maybe I feel particularly emotionally strong about this because of Sandy Hook. But not only should we study it, by the way, let's have an honest conversation about this, right? We're talking about mass shootings, which are brutal, but two-thirds of the people who die in this country as a result of firearms die because of suicide. So why aren't we constantly talking about safe storage? And I'll tell you why. Because when somebody like me says, what if we have a basic standard for storing whatever weapon the Second Amendment entitles you to have in your home, um, my Republican friends say, you're a gun grabber. And I say, what about universal background check? 90%. You're a gun grabber. They can't have this conversation because if the conversation is something other than Himes, you're a gun grabber, what happens is people realize like, holy smokes, 90% of Americans agree with universal background check. Holy smokes, we should have standards. But, but for, because this has become an issue of culture and identity, mm -hmm. it's really important for the right wing to make sure that we never have an honest conversation about guns in this country. And the cost we pay, of course, is in roughly 90,000 Americans a year. Congressman Style, uh, I imagine you would like to preserve your relationship with the honorable chairman of your select committee. 
but I will give you a moment to respond. Uh, let's just look at the, the background check legislation that we've seen. It would have made uh, folks in the community of Kenosha who borrowed uh, a neighbor's gun when civil um, civil society broke down for three nights during dangerous riots. It would make uh, both the lender and the receiver of that gun a federal felon. I think that's the question at the table. There's a lot of nuance in these bills, uh, and I think the Second Amendment's important, and we need to make sure that we're protecting our constitutional rights. To use his phraseology, is the distinguished chairman a gun grabber? I, I, we, we get into the policies. I don't think he's a gun grabber. Uh, I, I don't know all the policies that he supports on, on as it relates to the Second Amendment, but I do think there are concerns uh, with some of the legislation uh, that's been put forward in the real-world implications uh, that it would have. And I think the, the example of folks who are literally borrowing their neighbor's guns to defend their home uh, and to defend their family during three nights of riots in Kenosha, I don't think either the individual that loaned the gun or the individual that received that gun uh, should be viewed as a federal felon as the proposed legislation would allow. Congressman Style, a recent CBS News poll found that 40% of self-identified Republicans said, unfortunately, mass shootings are just something we have to live with in America. Do you agree with that sentiment? Absolutely not. We should not live with one mass shooting. The challenge is what are the policies we need to put in place uh, to address it. I've offered three that I think we could come together on uh, to address this crisis. I think we could come together. I think there's areas of agreement, in particular as it relates to school resource officers, it relates, as it relates uh, to mental health, um, and as it relates to getting serious on gun crime writ large. Mr. Chairman, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Final words on the U.S. economy. Well, so this committee is really about trying to understand American economic disparity, which you know, is hurting Americans because it's harder and harder to be middle class. But guess what? It's hurting us as participants in the political system because in a world where Americans don't feel like they have a stake in their economy, they also come to believe that maybe they don't have a stake in their democracy. And sadly, I think that that explains a lot of where our politics have gone in the last five, six, seven years. And I don't just mean Donald Trump. I mean an awful lot of Americans of left and right saying, there's just nothing in this for me anymore. And I think if we don't fix that, our, our democracy is at risk. That is the voice of Jim Himes. He is the chairman of the House Select Committee on the Economy. Brian style ranking Republican. They've both been our special guests. I'm Major Garrett. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For those watching on CBS News Streaming and on all of our podcast platforms, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake. Especially I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Hi, Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. We're out and about here in Washington, D.C. Glad to say that is true. Santa Rosa is our host restaurant. It's been very nice to be here. Two guests this week. Wow. Usually only one, but we found room for two at the table. Jim Himes, Democrat from Connecticut. He is the chair of the House Select Committee on the Economy, Brian Stile, Republican from the 1st District of Wisconsin. So, gentlemen, this is the fun and games portion of the conversation. We lower the temperature a little bit. Um, and because I want to, you have lots of time to answer these three threshold questions. We've asked every single guest on this show, take all the time you need. So I'll start with you, Mr. Chairman. Three questions. 
most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie, you're on a long flight or a long drive, and you're going to really enjoy some music, what music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Okay, let's start with book. I'm going to go with The Killer Angels. And the reason mm-hmm. for that, so that's a book about, it's a sort of fictionalized version of the Battle of Gettysburg, and in particular, the defense here. You're nodding like you know this book. The reason I put this, uh, the, the reason I put that at the top of my list is that Joshua Chamberlain, mm-hmm. uh, who commanded the yes. 20th Maine at yes. uh, Little Round Top, is mm-hmm. kind of my personal hero. Here is a classics professor mm-hmm. from Oberlin in Maine, uh, you know, was drafted in and ultimately was awarded the Medal of Honor for his defense and, and uh, was uh, tapped by President Lincoln to accept the Southern surrender. So uh, I, I put the Killer Angels. Uh, tell me that the second one was, second question was? All-time favorite movie. Oh, all-time favorite movie. Gosh, I'm going to say Apocalypse Now because of the cast, right? Mm-hmm. Robert Duvall, Martin Sheen. It goes on and on and on. I'm just an epic. A very overweight Marlon Brando. Oh, very overweight, but by that last closing scene. And it's also fun if you read The Heart of Darkness yes. by Robert Conrad. It's yep. obviously based on based that. Based on that so entirely. Yep. Such a rich, rich movie. Brutal, but but really magnificent movie. And the songs that I can't Music you, with, li- uh, you listen to. You really enjoy you know uh i'm a little bit sort of folksy alt so i'm having us rethink right now the avid brothers came out about 10 years ago mm-hmm. really really wonderful kind of southern bluegrassy yep. music just love it my son loves the avid brothers and i was nodding because i know michael shiraz book very well the killer angels i know the movie that ron maxwell made gettysburg ron maxwell was a guest on this show we went out to his home and Basically, I watch Gettysburg, the movie, every 4th of July weekend. Wow. It is one of my 4th of July rituals. So I know the book incredibly well. And uh, if, if you're going to have a personal hero in American life, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, you can't do much better than most that. Most amazing man you've never heard of. Ex- I most certainly have heard of him. Uh, Congressman Style, you have three questions for you. I'll, I'll jump with the books. I'd give you the genre. I love biographies. And so in the, the cheesy answer would be I just finished uh, the Hamilton biography about four years after everybody else. But as we go back and read the biographies, in particular some of our founding fathers, it's a real appreciation uh, for what built and created the country that we are blessed uh, to live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite movie, it would be The Godfather. Um, maybe that's a bit of a, a cliche and a staple, but it's just regularly a good, mentioned, solid, regularly classic mentioned. movie. Same directors, right? Uh, Apocalypse Now and, uh, am I right, and Godfather? Francis Ford Coppola. Yep. Francis Ford Coppola. Yep. Look at us bonding here over See, exactly. Mexican food in Washington, exactly. D.C. forgive you that, that research that, thing. That, 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 that is good. <laughs> and, you know, I, I owe a lot of driving, driving across uh, the state of Wisconsin, yeah, across sure. southeast Wisconsin. I always find myself listening to country music. Somehow, it just relaxes me more than some other music uh, that's out there. And for whatever reason, I'm convinced without any data supporting this that there's fewer commercials on country radio stations than there are on other stations. I have no ability to know if that's true, but boy, it sure sounds like that's the case. Well, if plus, you- plus the best titles ever, right? You know, how can I miss you if you won't go away? <laughs> right. When the phone don't ring, you'll know it's me. <laughs> I got some Connecticut country. You do, you do have some <laughs> Connecticut country. So what, one quick note about Apocalypse Now. Uh, that's one of the few movies in which there are three versions from the same director. There's the original cut that went into the theaters in 1979. Then there's the Redux released in 2000. Then there's the recut of the Redux put out in like 2007. Re- one of the reasons is Francis Ford Coppola shot 200 hours of film for that movie. Wow. 200 hours for roughly a movie that was like just under two hours, 2.49, and then The Sweet Spot, about two hours and 20 minutes. Martin Sheen had a heart attack during the filming he of that did. movie, right? He yeah. did indeed, and they had yeah. to cover all that up because ah. there, was, there were production delays, the studio was furious, it was way, way over budget, and if they'd heard that one of the main actors was disabled, they'd have pulled the plug. 
so they had to cover the whole thing up. The story about the making of Apocalypse Now is not, almost as good as the movie itself. I just watched it recently. It's phenomenal and stands the test of time. Uh, and your favorite movie? Oh, The Godfather. Yeah, that yeah. will always stand the test of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, gentlemen, it's been a, a pleasure. Uh, thanks for being good sports on the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you all next week, but not from Santa Rosa, someplace else here in the District of Columbia. See ya. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.